Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So in our backyard, we have this um, this hillside that has eucalyptus trees uh, kind of spaced out. And they were planted to kind of help root this hillside so there wouldn't be erosion. And when we moved into this house, uh, one thing we realized is that the trees had become so big that they became dangerous. And eucalyptus trees self-prune, and so they'll drop limbs. And um, so I think just during a windstorm, like, hey, we should probably get these, you know, trimmed down, taken care of, removed. And so we had an arborist come out, and he looked at these trees in our backyard, um, and he said, what do you want to do? Do you want to like cut them down to the stump? Do you want to take them out? Um, and I was like, well, let's just, let's just cut them at the stump, you know? And I'm just thinking like, well, that's great. Like the roots will stay in the ground, prevent the hillside from eroding. And so he comes and um, their team come and they just trim these trees down to the trunk. Uh, well, sure enough, a couple years later, um, they are not as thick anymore, but they're tall. Like they have grown up and they are healthy and vibrant and they are here again. And uh, we're kind of faced with this this next phase of the question of how often do we have to continue to trim down these trees? And, and at what point uh, is the cost of removal uh, the right the right step. And the reason I tell that story is we're going to be arriving at this part in the letter to the Colossians where Paul affirms this reality that you've been raised with Christ. You have been given new life that because of the greatness of Jesus, he has made a way that he has disarmed uh, the rulers and authorities of this dark world, that um, there's so much promise And then he goes into this passage that we're going to be studying today, and he talks about that there's still a tension that exists, um, and that tension is sin. And uh, this passage is going to dive into uh, some really, um, some subjects that are hard to talk about. They're subjects that can kind of make us squirm a little bit. And so Jess is just, in all honesty, if you, if your kids are watching this with you, if your junior higher is watching this with you and they're not ready for kind of the mature content that we're going to be diving into, now's a good time maybe to um, just find a good time or a good place to watch this. But I would encourage you, I think this is a significant uh, message and passage that we need to dive into. And so Paul in verse 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, and the therefore is speaking of because we've been raised with Christ. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such... Um, such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, 
circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so here, Paul says, listen, the, the root's been removed because of Christ, but there's still, we now have to deal with the ramifications of the world we live in, the soil that surrounds this. And so we are, we're kind of faced with these two different options. For, for many of us, we treat sin like cutting down these trees. Sin pops up, we feel guilty, beat ourselves up, when we, so we cut them down. We, and we practice self-control or willpower, and it goes away for a couple of months, or we stop it for a moment, or those thoughts go away. And what we don't understand is unless we let Jesus deal with the root um, then we're not doing much at all. We're just continuing to modify our behavior without any inward transformation. But even if we let Christ come and dwell in our heart richly, and He's the Lord of our life, it doesn't make sin magically disappear. So what's that? Well, it's the soil that surrounds us. It's the world that we live in. It's the, it's the this this current and this tension that we that we live in. And so, and so Paul says, therefore, you have been raised with Christ. The root has been removed. It's, evil has been dealt with. Yet, we have a job to do. We have to deal seriously with sin. D. A. Carson says, people do not drift toward holiness apart from, and I love this phrase, grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. This is the tension. We, we, don't, we don't just fall into holiness. It is something that we have to fight for. And the reality is, is the sin in our life, we have become masters of justification. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Well, I'm not sinning like that person's sinning. Oh man, I've been doing this for so many years. It doesn't really matter. God knows my heart. I mean, like you name it. We are masters of justification of our sin. I love Carson's quote because it just drives and dives into that. And he says that we have to approach this idea of holiness and the the idea of sin with this grace-driven effort. But here's, here's the warning. If we think we can do it, and if we are trying to defeat sin by our own self-righteousness, then we are essentially trying to fight sin with sin. It's, it's the pride, it's the own self-ability within us that's trying to fight towards this. And so I want to be very clear before we dive into some of these specifics of the sin that Paul is mentioning, that we have to begin with the reality that it is Jesus who deals with the root. It is the cross of Christ that has gone away with sin 
And it is only by the grace of Jesus that we get to experience new life. But in that new life, we don't get to just sink back into whatever patterns that we live into. It is vital and essential that we live and press into a life of holiness. Uh, Colin Smith says this, It is possible to change your behavior and not be a Christian, but it is impossible to mortify or to, to kill sin without Christ. Through willpower, you can change behavior, but only through Christ can new life come to a heart. I love that. Only through Christ can new life come to a heart. So Paul's going to talk about this war of this old self and this new self. And as he talks about this war, there's three things I want to pick up on today. There's something he, there's things he says put to death. There's things he says that we need to put off. And then there's something that says we need to put on. So we need to put to death sin, put off the old self, and put on the new self. Let's dive into this. Um, scholars debate if, if this idea of put to death and, and, and put off the old self are just kind of two similar, um, kind of one and the same. Um, most scholars would agree that, that he's describing a variance, that when he says put to death and he talks about these specific sins and then he goes on and says, and put these off, he's not saying that necessarily one, one is more, um, removes us from God's presence more than the other. But I think what Paul is trying to get to is sins have different level of consequence. Although they all disqualify us um, from being right with God, all sin is not the same. And so there are two sins that Paul is addressing to the Colossian church that he says these strong words, put to death. And these have to deal with the sins around sexuality and the sins around greed and money. And I got to just let you know, uh, having a sermon that we get to talk about sex and money in the same one is just a great recipe to get some emails or something like this. Uh, so what I would encourage you to do is rather than put up a wall um, to actually s to put those walls down. And let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and let's, let's be honest about these two things. They were a big deal in Paul's day and they're a big deal in our day. What we do with sexuality and what we do with our money matters to God because they matter to our heart. They, they speak to our heart and it matters, matters to those around us. And so... Um, as we dive into this first section, I, I want to enter into it just with a level of sensitivity and just to say, I am not preaching this um, from some, some high hill of, um, as I'm looking down. And, and please hear me, I am not any better than any one of you. I am not at a different status than any one of you. Matter of fact, I come and I, and I speak about sexual sin and, and, and the, the sin of greed and, and the misuse of money, not from a place of condemnation and judgment as much as a place of broken heart. I have watched these two idols and these two false loves do so much damage in our world. And we have to see what God speaks about them. 
Because Paul says, he says, we need to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he has this list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire. So these, these four different ideas surrounding the idea um, just of, of, of sexual sin. And then he ends it with these other two. And it says, and greed, which is idolatry. And so Paul has this, this strong language for these two specific things, sexual sin and the sin with money. This, this term put to death is used again in Romans. Another letter that Paul writes when he says in Romans 8, starting in verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This passage uh, gives us a tremendous insight, and I want you to catch this. If we don't put sin to death, sin will put us to death. That's the severity of these, these two sins that Paul is talking about. If we don't deal with these two sins, these sins will deal with us. And again, this doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive you. It just means that the carnage and the death that surround those sins when they are not in their right order is massive. And I've witnessed it. And I'm sure if you've lived any amount of life, you've witnessed the carnage of that. And so this is a plea, not just from my heart, but hopefully the Holy Spirit to yours, that if you have found yourself within sexual sin, if you found yourself within the sin of greed and how you look at money, this is a call towards repentance. And so I want to just kind of just talk about where we're at with these two subjects, just culturally. Uh, number one, uh, the... The idea of sexuality in our culture has rapidly been changing. And what we think about sexuality and sex and lust, pornography, relationships, has to do with the story that we believe, the dominant narrative of our culture or the dominant narrative of scripture. And they are vastly different. And so I want to do my best just to kind of name these two narratives um, and how we, we get to choose. Are we going, which one are we going to live into and which one are we going to put to death? Now, our culture has, has had this massive swing over the last 50 years, over the last 60 years. Um, when it started in 1960, uh, really kind of the, the peak of the sexual revolution um, things began to change. In 1960 was the first time that the oral contraceptive was approved by the FDA. It wasn't approved for single people to use until 1972 by the Supreme Court. Just, so just think about that. 50 years ago, if you were single, you were not allowed to buy this contraceptive. And 50 years ago, without legalized, it was, a, it was a much broader statement than a Supreme Court ruling. It was a sign of where we were going as a culture in terms of sexuality. It was the first time that we were removing um, 
sex with procreation. It was the first time that we were moving sex with um, long-lasting covenant relationships. And we began to associate sex as primarily a vehicle for pleasure. And so we were moving from procreation, committed relationships, to pleasure, and whatever transactional relationships fitted that. Um, that has continued to progress uh, specifically with the introduction and the rapid, rampant growth of por the pornography industry in our nation. Um, and that took a whole nother um, just huge growth step as far as its distribution with the invention of the internet and then the smartphone. And so now people had privatized computers around them all the time. And the statistics are enormous of the age and the breadth of who is exposed uh, to pornography and how old they are when, they, when, they, when they're exposed to it. In 2013, uh, the app Tinder was released uh, onto the Apple platform and pretty soon after that into the Android platform and quickly became the number one dating app uh, ever to be on a smartphone to this day. And what Tinder introduced was not only the ability to uh, meet someone to go on a date with, which um, Match.com, eHarmony had been around since uh, really the internet had begun, but began this idea of hookup culture. That you could literally, through preferences, just be like, well, I don't even want to find a relationship. I just want to go find someone to hook up with. And so what we have found is in the last 50 to 60 years, there has been this rapid movement of what our culture says is sexually ethical, moral, and I think because of that, there is a ton of anxiety and confusion around what to do with sex. What is the purpose of sex? And so Paul's writing to a church in Colossae in the Greco-Roman world that has has a similar problem. It's an overly sexualized, objectified culture um, that was using people, harming people for these very, very selfish ambitions. And we've done that. And so this stuff isn't new, but what's new about this is this sexual relativism is now praised as the moral and ethical good. And so that's, that's one narrative, that's one story that's being told, that sex is, is fine as long as it's between two consenting adults. And what, what I find fascinating is this narrative um, that began with sexual freedom was kind of their mantra, has now led to a massive swing of things like the Me Too movement of sexual harassment cases going skyrocketing. Why? Well, because we have believed a narrative as culture that I can do whatever I want when it comes to sexuality. Now, what I would like to offer to you is the scriptures, which, again, secular society would say has kind of a, an, an oppressive view of sex. I think it's the opposite. I think the scriptures have a high view of sexuality. And the way that they talk and the way the scriptures talk about sex is not bad. It's not gross. It's not negative. It's just to be honored. It's powerful. 
It's so powerful, in fact, that God gave the, the relational dynamics of covenant between, um, between a married man and woman as the only container safe enough to handle the power of it. It's not because if it's, it's oppressive or patriarchal. It's because it has such a high value and, and there's such a power to it. And so and here we're stuck between these two stories, just like the Colossians were. And so Paul writes them and says, listen, you've been raised with Christ, put to death the dominant narrative of sexuality you have been living into. Put it to death and begin to start living into what God speaks about these things. And I think for us, we need to hear that cry. Why? Because if we don't put to death the, the, the sin and sexuality um, combination, it will put us to death. It will put marriages to death. It will put minds to death. It will put, it will put people's futures and mental health to death because that is what sin does. It lies to us saying, this is a better route than the route that God told you is good. And so all sin is a trust issue. All sin is saying, I know what God says. I just think I might know better. Or I know what God says, but I just want to try it out for myself. And I've sat with dozens. Jen and I have sat with dozens, if not hundreds of people on our sofas, in our offices that have wept because they have lived their life into a cultural narrative that says you can do whatever you want sexually. And my friends, we, the, the, the church, the world, people who've lived into that narrative are now dealing with the ramifications of that, the death of that. And so I, I'm, I'm bringing this up to, to plead with you. If you are living a life that again, this is not, I'm not calling to question your salvation, but if you're living a life that you're like, yeah, I'm good, I'm going to church, I'm a Christian, I read my Bible sometimes, and I look at pornography sometimes. Or yeah, I, I'm married and I love my wife, I love God and things like that. It doesn't really matter that I'm flirting with my coworker at work. Oh, it's, you know, it's not a big deal that sometimes, you know, like when we're on business trips, we go to this one place and I look at these... I'm... I'm I'm sensing the Holy Spirit. I'm clearly hearing the scriptures call us to, this is not our identity. This is not our story. We need to deal violently with the things in our life that we have just let drift into what culture says is sexually ethical or right. And we need to return back to, well, God, what do you say? What do you say? And again, there's so much we have to cover today. I can't go into everything. This is just, a, again, just a, a cry for you to go and to do your research, to read the scriptures, to, to pray and to say, God, I don't want to live in this place. And again, I know that because of the early age, because of technology, a lot of the people who are dealing with sexual sin, it feels like a trap. You want to get out and you don't know how to. You're like, I would love to stop. I just can't. I'm so tired of being stuck in this. And I would just want to offer you just something very practical. If that's you, would you reach out? Ask for help. You can shoot me an email if you'd like. Um, we'd love to, to send you to the right uh, 
places to the right resources to make sure that you don't have to believe the narrative like, well, I guess it's just who I am. It doesn't have to be the case. God is calling us back to sexual holiness. And through that, it allows humanity relationships to flourish. The second thing here he says to put to death is greed, which is idolatry. And, and I think that this is something, to be honest, that we don't like to talk a, a lot about. Um, being Many of us living in, in San Diego, close to the coast, um, we, it feels very comfortable. And, and for us to, to think about greed, it's easy for us to dismiss it like, oh, we're, not, we're not greedy, you know? I give a little bit here or there, and, you know, like I help out someone when I can. And by the way, I worked really hard for this money. And I just wanted us just to sit, not with, not with this idea of comparing, but let the Holy Spirit just evaluate your heart and your bank account and just say, is there greed? Because if there's greed... Paul says, it's idolatry. You are looking to money as your God, your Savior, your security, the place of your attention and focus. And it will do the same thing that any other sin we give ourselves over to will do. It will kill you from the inside out because it's not a God. Any idol we give our affection and worship to, time and attention and adoration, will fool us into thinking it can offer us what only God can offer. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says this, Why would Jesus Christ have given up heaven? Why would Jesus Christ have given up His glory? Why would Jesus Christ have given up all the treasures he had? Because you and I were more valuable to him than that. And until you are melted by his generosity, you will not be free from the power of money. If you treasure anything else in your life, if you make anything but Jesus your ultimate treasure, it will drive you. It will control you. You will feel like, I've got to have it. It will demand that you die for it. But Jesus Christ is the only treasure that died for you. Died to get you. And to the degree that you see that your heart will be restructured in its motivation, its identity, its approach to the world, and you will want to scatter, you will want to scatter, you will turn your money into real wealth. And so my, my exhortation again, I mean, I, I know these are heavy topics and there's so much we could say about them, but here's what I would like for us to be serious about. How do we view money? Do we view it as our God, as our security, as our thing? And, and the answer can't just be an emotional one. It has to be a practical one. If you've been to Light Church for a while, you know we, we kind of rarely talk about even the opportunity to give, um, the, the, the idea of tithing. And it's not because we're ashamed of it, but it's because we know that there has been many of you who have been abused 
um, by leadership or churches that have tried to convince you that you are only blessed by God if you give, that, that you are somehow more of a Christian or less of a Christian based on how much you give. And I, we know there's tons of wounds and triggers around that, but, but I want you to hear my heart. If, if we continue to allow money to be our source of passion, of of adoration, of worship, um, and it's an idol in our life, um, then we will begin to experience the, the erosion of our own heart and soul. So what does the Bible say to do with this? Well, it says for us to model Jesus. I love what Keller said. Like we, God is a generous God. Why do we know that? Because for God so loved the world that He gave and so he, as followers of Jesus, we are to model that generosity with our time, with our passion, and with our finances. We are called to be a generous people. Every penny that you have worked for, everything that's in your bank account, everything you own, okay, I just want to tell you, scripturally speaking, is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. That everything that, that I own, everything that I've purchased, it doesn't belong to me. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is why Jesus talks about money quite frequently. And he says it like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Which is why the antidote to greed throughout scripture is, is biblical generosity. Is that we are to be people who are generous with our time, with our passion, with our energy, and with our money. Kind of the, the biblical model that we, ha- we see for this is this, this idea of, of a tithe, of a 10%. And if you look back at, at Jewish literature based on the Levitical laws, the priestly laws, the festivals, they were tithing probably closer to 23%. I wanted to read you some statistics um, about what tithe has looked like over the generations. The greatest generation, people born in 1945, um, had a percentage of that generation gave was 88%. And so their average yearly gift in that age is about $1,300. Boomers uh, went down to 72% who gave with $1,200 average yearly gift. Um, Generation X went down to 59%. Their average yearly gift was 732. Millennials uh, actually bumped a little bit up as far as people who do give. It's about 60 to 80%. Um, But their average yearly gift was less of 481. And so what we're seeing is as the generations are progressing, this generosity is fading. Now what they're finding with millennials and especially Gen Z is that compassion is growing, a willingness to give is going, which is fine. But here's what concerns me. We are not called to give if we are inspired. We are called to give because we serve a generous God. And so it's interesting. There's a, there's a study done by Mike Holmes of CLF Capital that just crunched the numbers. What would happen if every Christian tithed? Listen to this. I find this fascinating. According to Holmes, $165 billion would become available and could be used this way. This is what he said. $25 billion could relieve global hunger and eliminate deaths from preventable disease within five years. 
15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where a majority of people live on less than $1 a day. 12 billion could end illiteracy. 1 billion could fully fund an overseas missions work, which leaves over $100 billion left for additional ministry expansion. I mean, it's, it is wild to think about um, what could happen. Uh, I just heard a study that 5% of churchgoers um, tithe. Now, I, before you start feeling like guilty and squirming in your seat, I want to let you know for our church, that percentage is significantly higher. We have a generous church. This is not a guilt trip. Rather, this is a call to evaluate. Not you in your life, me in my life. I've spent time just praying and I'm redoing my budget this week and I'm looking at my finances and I'm asking the question, God, is money an idol in my life? Am I using the finances that you've given me with the reality that everything that I have belongs to you? Which means everything needs to go back to you. And again, whether that's used to feed my family, which is a biblical duty, um, whether that's going towards tithe, towards my church, whether it's going towards the, the two children we span, sponsor through compassion, whatever that looks like, we need to be able to ask ourselves the question, Lord, is this, is this in line with the life you have called us to? And again, if this is, these are the two things that Paul says, listen, you're, you've been raised with Christ, but you need to put to death sexual sin, and you need to put to death greed. And so it would be wrong of me as a pastor to skip over this passage and just pretend like, oh, I'm sure you're all good. Um, one of the things we're going to be doing as a church is we're going to be offering a class, um, understanding that a lot of people would love to give and they can't because, again, they're trapped. One-third of Christians are and have a significant debt load which means that any sermon on giving just feels like they just feel shameful. That's not, our, that's not the point here. I'd encourage you. Um, one of our council members, James Canole, is going to be teaching a class on what financial stewardship looks like, and it's going to be an amazing opportunity coming mid-March. You can check it out. Um, but the idea is that we as a people of God would just continue to deal seriously with those two things. Why? Because Paul... Paul through the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us to. We have to do seriously with those two things. My last two points are going to be quick. I know I spent a lot of time on that. But the second thing is not just to put to death sin, but he says you need to put off your old self. It says you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, do not lie to one another, each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this list. I want you to see if maybe the Holy Spirit kind of touches on one of these in your life. This is part of your old self that needs to be put off. Imagine like a cloak being taken off. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. Um, can I tell you the, the one place that immediately came to my mind, and maybe came to yours, uh, was social media. I mean, gosh, look at this list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. And, and again, I know this, this should go into every area of our life, but just for a moment, 
If you need a filter on what you post, what you comment, uh, you let your filter be, and I love Chris Brown said this, it should be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You just ask yourself the question, is this patient? Is this kind? Is this loving? Is this joyful? Is this experience self-control? Because what I, what I have found in our society in the same way that we've just totally turned a corner when it comes to how our understanding of sexuality, of money, um, with that, this idea of like you can figure out whatever you think is right for you, gives this sense of increased anger and animosity. And I'm, just, I'm calling us back to this is not what the people of God are called to do. That's a part of your old self. Listen, I know that there's things that fire you up as a Christian, and they should. But your old self looked like the person of anger and rage and malice and slander, not your new self. It doesn't mean we don't fight. It doesn't mean we don't care for what's right. It just means how we go about it needs to look like Jesus. He's our rabbi. We are his apprentices. And thirdly, we need to put sin to death, we need to put off our old self, and we need to put on the new self. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I was having a conversation with my friend Matt a while ago, and he was talking about this book he was reading about these monks who started a monastery, understanding that humans have an essential dignity given to them by God. And with the desire to know the giver of that dignity, in their view of sin, is what happens when we forget our essential dignity and where it comes from. I love this. Sin is when we forget our essential dignity and the dignity of others. And so, as we've talked a lot today about sin, I just wanted to leave us with that definition. I think it's a good one. Sin is when we forget our God-given dignity, and we have stopped looking to the giver of that dignity. Sin is when we treat other people with a lack of God-given dignity. Whether it's the person you're looking on on your computer, whether it's the person you're slandering on social media. And what he says in this passage, I love this, he says, put on the new self. It's being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. It's the giver. We are being made. We are made in the image of God, and we are being reminded of that in Christ. We have been made in His image. And then He says this, Here, in the Imago Dei, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. This picture right here is is, is a picture of, of heaven. There's no race, ranking, oppressor, oppressee. We are all made in the image of God. And so I think in in the light of this year, specifically within our black brothers and sisters, there has been this cry of lament. And I think sadly what I have found the church responses to be is very cautious because it, it falls into the political realm. And can I, just, can I just say, being made in the image of God means that in here, that we have to remember our God-given dignity. And, this, and the list that it gives here, it's a racial list. 
Gentile and Jew, barbarian and Scythian, and what he's talking about in a very segregated, oppressive society, he's reminding the Colossians, this is not so in the kingdom of God. Humanity needs to be treated with dignity. If you can't hear the word race without having some sort of political affiliation, then you need to root yourself in the biblical story. This is an Imago Day issue. We've talked about this a few months ago, and I'm going to keep talking about this as a church. We need to feel when our brothers and sisters, whether it's within the black community, whether it's um, with our brothers and sisters who are refugees who've come here, and make sure that we first and foremost understand that there is an a dignity, a divine dignity that exists within every human being. And that needs to navigate how we treat each other, how we love each other, because this is ultimately where we're heading in heaven. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. This is describing the, the courts of heaven. And no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And I love this because this picture doesn't mean that there's no race. It doesn't mean that there's no color, there's no tradition or heritage. What it means is it's a place where all of those beautiful uniquenesses are celebrated and welcomed in one place, all brought underneath the amazing, gracious hand of Jesus Christ. And that's what our world needs to look right now. And the church needs to lead in that. And so again, I know I just talked about sex, money, and race in one sermon, and you're probably <laughs> exhausted. But again, my, my hope in this is not that you would feel shame. It wouldn't be that you'd feel put off. It would be that you would, that you would not be asleep. You would not just slouch into like, well, this is just who I am. It doesn't really matter. It, and I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It matters. How you think and how you live into sexuality matters to God. What you do with your money matters to God. How we handle our brothers and sisters who are in different socioeconomic statuses or belong to different ethnicities matter. All of these things Paul is saying, we need to take off the old self and put on the new. There's a war going on and God is calling us to live out the reality that what? We have been raised with Christ. That is the narrative that he's calling us into. Before I, before I pray, I wanted to leave you with four very practical steps. If you're just left to me, okay, what do I do with this? I know this is a longer sermon, but, but I think this is important. Uh, number one, remember this, the necessity of Jesus. If you don't let Jesus take care of the root of sin, you are just trimming down trees that are going to grow back. You have to let him deal with the root. And it's only by the grace of God that he does that. Give your life over to Jesus. Let him come in. Have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, there's healing and confession. If you're struggling with any of these things, confess it. What lives in the dark dies in the light. James 5 talks about how when we confess our sins and pray for another, we will be healed. We have to practice vulnerability. Number three, there's a journey of repentance. We have to be willing to step. And repentance literally means to turn, change your mind, change direction. John Owen says the power of sin is weakened and abolished 
little by little. I don't expect you to hear a sermon all of a sudden that you never struggle with pornography again. What I'm expecting you is to hear the Holy Spirit today and become serious about it and to take steps. To take steps with that. And so encouragement I would have is identify and cultivate the virtues that are most contrary to the sin that you are battling. For example, if your sin is lust and sexual immorality, cultivate the virtue of purity and sexual justice. Fight human trafficking. Like enter into the fight on the other end of the spectrum. Fight for purity. Become intentional with that. Number two, if your sin is greed, cultivate the virtue of generosity and simplicity. Rather than asking what this is what I deserve, to say what can I give? If your sin is anger, cultivate the virtue of lament and surrender. And if your sin is pride, cultivate the virtue of humility. You get the idea. If you can identify your sin, what is the, uh, what is the antidote to that as far as a virtue goes? And cultivate that. Lastly, find the strength within community. Don't do this alone. Man, sin will mess us up, but it will, it will take over us if we're doing it by ourselves. We have to, whether it's finding an open table or a brotherhood or a sisterhood of some way to say, I need you to fight with me. I, I want to put to death these sins. I want to put off my old self. I want to put on the new self. I don't want to be caught in the current of the culture around me. I want to live anchored to the truth of Jesus Christ. Find your strength within community, whether it's the class we have on finances, whether you reach out and you want to find a group that can help you with purity, um, whether you need resources on even racial reconciliation, we have those as well. I mean, or a myriad of other things. Do it together in community. Next week, we're going to find out about what it looks like to put on the new self. You're not going to want to miss it because we're not just about dealing with sin or about figuring out how do we live in resurrection. Um, but before I end, just let me pray for you. Lord, I know that this this passage is heavy and it was meant to be. God is meant to be very clear that we're not to take lightly the, the areas of sin in our life because God, if we're not putting to death sin, sin's going to be putting us to death. Help us remember that our fight has already been won. The root's been removed. But Lord Jesus, we still need to deal with the soil of the world we live in, Lord God, that the, the war of our flesh and our spirit empower us, Holy Spirit. We know that this is a fight we need you to empower us to win. God, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for victory. Lord, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.